Luke chapter 7. Have you ever been somewhere you knew you didn't belong? When I was, when Jennifer and I were in our first year of marriage, on her birthday, I took her to the fanciest restaurant in Memphis, a place called Chez Philippe inside the Peabody Hotel. And it was a coat and tie kind of place. Uh, very, very nice. When we sat down, we had four waiters just for our table. One of them put my napkin in my lap for me. I almost punched him. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And they, I mean, I, now I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it seemed like there were seven different forks on one side of my plate. They kept bringing these things out in between courses called palate cleansers. I'd never had a palate cleanser before. Now, it was an incredible experience, but I was completely out of place. I was just sure in looking around that everybody could, could tell that I was the odd man out at Chez Philippe. Because I'm the kind of guy that, I mean, if you give me Trace Grill or Primo's, give me a place that has one kind of fork, then I'll be happy. But in that moment, I felt like I didn't belong. I, I was afraid to touch anything. It just wasn't my kind of place. Now, all of us know that feeling, and I trust that we know it to a much deeper degree, that, that our insecurities play on us and we don't feel like we belong somewhere. And so I'm guessing that maybe at some point you've had a thought like this. I'm the dumbest kid in this class. A little more serious than a Shea Philippe kind of experience, but I'm, I'm, I'm the dumbest kid in my class. I'm the black sheep of my family. I'm the worst player on this team. I'm the lowest on the totem pole at work. I'm the most sinful person in this church. Maybe we've had those kind of, that, that sense of not belonging at some point, and it's a miserable feeling. Whether there's any truth to it or not is, is irrelevant. If we feel it, it drives us to a very dark place, and it's possible that we can spend our entire lives trying to compensate for that feeling, trying to overcome that sense of insecurity, and we can give all of our energies to becoming good enough that we might belong, that we might be accepted by others. Uh, it's a problem, and from our cultural perspective, it's one of the greatest problems that we face, which is why so much of our, uh, of our talk shows and our self-help books at the, at the bookstore are, are kind of revolve around why, why we need to love ourselves, accept ourselves more, because this, this insecurity drives a lot of our identity. But the truth is, our problem runs much deeper than just that. Our problem is not chiefly about insecurities and appearances. The greatest question in the universe is not, where do I belong in relationship to others? It may feel like it, but it's not. The greatest question, the most significant question is, do I belong to God? Do I know God? And does God know me? I think it was A.W. Tozer, I think, who said the most important thing about a human being is what he thinks of God, is that relationship. And of course, the problem that the Bible makes very clear for us is that although we are created in the image of God, like I said a minute ago, although God loves us very deeply, our sin has created a separation between us and God that's like a great chasm that cannot be crossed. That because of our willful rebellion against God, there's this, this sense of belonging to God has been permanently fractured, and there's nothing that we can do to repair it, this, this chasm that keeps us from God. But it's right there in the midst of that. The, the focal point, the primary message of the entire Bible is driving us to the place where God intervenes into that problem. This, this insurmountable chasm that we, that we see that God is far from us because of our 
choices because of our rebellion, God intervened to solve that problem. Something that we could never do, he stepped in, and through Jesus Christ, God has brought us near. Something we've looked at already in Ephesians, that by the blood of Christ, he brought us near, that we might belong to him, that we might no longer look at God as perhaps a, a slave to a master, but that we would know him as children to a heavenly father and have unbroken relationship with God. And that does not depend on our ability to measure up. There's no ladder to climb when it comes to uh, our, our relationship with God. It depends instead on something we call grace. And Philip Yancey calls grace the most important and most precious word in the English language. The only unperverted word that we still have, he says, is grace. That C.S. Lewis came into a great hall of theologians one day, and they were trying to describe what is it that makes Christianity unique from all the other religions. And oddly enough, they were having a lot of trouble in defining what it was in simplicity. And C.S. Lewis walks in and he says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. One word. Grace. And grace means that we belong to God in a way that we cannot earn, but it's given to us as a free gift by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, in Luke chapter 7, we are given this truth, and it's illustrated to us in a very unlikely fashion. And, and more specifically, it's given to us in an unlikely person. And what we see, what Brittany's already read for us, we see a story here that offends some of our sensibilities, perhaps. I don't know if you're like me, but I read this story and I squirm a little bit in thinking about it because it shows us with blunt force that God's grace uh, can save and transform anybody. Anybody that God bestows his grace on can be, and I believe will be, saved and changed. And we see that in, uh, not in who we would expect, not in the religious people of Jesus' day, but in a lowly, sinful woman. So let's pick up the story in verse 36. Luke 7, 36. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party. If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice he eats a lot. That was the culture of the day. That was the most important social recognition of where you stood in the culture is who invited you over for dinner. And so Jesus gets invited to a very important person's house. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, this guy's name is Simon, he was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in that city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. When Luke writes about a woman in the city who is a sinner, all the commentators agree on this, that he's talking about a prostitute. He's talking about a harlot. And there's really no uh, argument about this. Luke is being very gracious to only call her a sinner. He's kind of, he's giving her, um, uh, you know, an out here in a sense in the story. But it's pretty clear that when a woman is called a sinner in this culture, that it really essentially means this one thing. And prostitution by nature is a very humiliating and dehumanizing thing. It was then and it still is today. To make a living by giving your body over to strangers, to be abused and cast off and forgotten. It's an awful thing, and it's a shameful thing in our culture, but you have to multiply it by about 100 to get a sense of in the ancient Near East, in the time of Jesus Christ, this was about the worst possible sin. 
It was, for some people, considered worse than murder. A murderer was a better person, ultimately, than a prostitute. And so you have to get a sense of what this woman lived with. That on one hand, in the most important sense, she's a sinner. She has given her life to, uh, to rebellion. She has violated God's word and God's heart for her life. Yes. But if that's not bad enough, she would have been considered subhuman within the culture that surrounded her. She's the worst of the worst. And Luke is gracious in how he defines her as just a sinner, but she wouldn't have been treated as just a sinner, as, as a run-of-the-mill sinner. This is a woman who would have been treated with ugliness and contempt, a woman not fit to live by the religious people around her. But when she heard that Jesus was in a certain man's home having dinner, she sneaks in. She takes her place on the floor at his feet, and with tears and perfume, she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And it's, it's obvious, I think, as we read this story, this is not a, a misty-eyed woman here. She's not just a little bit moved in the presence of Christ. She is gushing tears. Luke says she is weeping, like some of y'all at the end of the notebook, okay? Like me at the end of Toy Story 3, confession. That, that she is weeping. She is out of control. This woman... Uh, is not only weeping, but she's using her hair to wipe up the tears. And in, in lieu of a towel, I guess she has no towel. She's using the only thing she has, the hair from her head. So what began as a cordial meal uh, has, has devolved now into something appalling and probably embarrassing. The dinner guests are beside themselves, and we get a, we get a, a, a hint of that in verse 39 that the man who invited Jesus into his home is watching this scene unfold. And it says, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, he thought, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Translated, if Jesus really came from God as he claims, he would know how filthy this woman is, and he would not dare let her touch him. But do we see what's happening here? Clearly, Jesus is not offended by this woman's presence. Jesus has welcomed her in. He has no issue with what she's doing. He's not the one offended. And furthermore, this woman clearly has an insight into Jesus that the Pharisee doesn't have. She knows something about Jesus that Simon doesn't know. Because she has found in this moment that her sin has not disqualified her from Christ. By every other standard, this woman is lost. She's hopeless. She is the worst of the worst. She is shut out from all uh, uh, you know, upstanding society. But she has found that she is more than welcomed to Jesus. So much so that she is willing now to risk total embarrassment. She is entered in uninvited. She could be arrested, perhaps, but she doesn't care. She's coming into this religious leader's house just to get close to her Savior, just to express her thanks and her love to him. Now, we don't know the backstory on this woman as to how she became saved, as to how she became a Christ follower. Luke doesn't tell us. Uh, did, they, did Jesus and this woman have a personal conversation at some point? Uh, was she just part of a crowd that heard him preaching the gospel and she received him by faith? We don't know. But what we do know is that this is a woman who has been radically affected by the ministry of God's Son. There's no mistaking it. She's not casually approaching the scene here. She has been given a grace so rich 
that she cannot control herself. She's beside herself. So whatever she's experienced in Christ has changed her life. I think it's fair for us to read that between the lines here. Now, that's a beautiful picture, but that's only half the story, and that really doesn't give us the full force of what Jesus wants us to see here. He's got to uh, address the elephant in the room at this point. And it might be for us watching this scene over the shoulder here to think that the elephant in the room is clearly this woman causing this scene, but it's not. The elephant in the room, the real problem here, as Jesus estimates, is Simon the Pharisee and his dinner guests, the religious people. Jesus is about to inform them that they're the problem, not her, and he does that beginning in verse 40. It says, and Jesus answered him. Now, real quickly, Simon didn't say anything out loud. In verse 39, he said to himself, he thought to himself, if Jesus were really a prophet, he'd know who this is. He wouldn't let her touch him. And then Jesus answers his thoughts. I just think that's an interesting detail right there. You know you're in trouble when Jesus answers your thought, okay? And says, Simon, I have something to say to you. This is not going to go well for him. And he replied, say it, teacher. Jesus said a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. That's about $100,000 compared to 10000 When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. So Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, this woman has gone above and beyond to love me and serve me and bless me, but you, Simon, have not even offered me common courtesy. He says, you did not wash my feet or greet me with a kiss or anoint my head with oil. Now that means nothing to us in our present culture, but in the time of Christ, those were common courtesies. If you invited a guest who was worthy of any honor at all, you would esteem him with basic etiquette, a kiss of greeting, water to wash his dirty feet, to anoint his head with oil. And Simon brings none of those things to Jesus Christ. And so to deny those things to a dinner guest would have been a serious insult. It would have been, an explana- uh, uh, it would have been a way of saying, I'm above you and you're beneath me. I'm having you over, but I don't actually respect you. That's what's being communicated here. And so here's Jesus, the only person in the house with filthy, disgusting, unwashed feet. And whereas Simon was too good even to offer him a bowl and a towel, this former harlot offers up her tears, her kisses, her hair, and her perfume. And then Jesus Uh, encapsulates this truth here. He gave a parable as to what's happening in, in the midst of this. And then in verse 47, he brings that parable to bear. He says, for this reason, still talking to Simon, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now that, that's the, probably the most important verse here in this section. But it's an easy one to misinterpret. I have the New American Standard Bible. That's what I use. Uh, The translation here is not ideal. 
Because we're tempted to think, if we read this at face value, her sins have been forgiven for she loved much. We might infer that this act of love, the kissing and the weeping and the perfume, that somehow she's earned her forgiveness through this act of devotion here. And that's not what's happening. Her love did not earn her forgiveness. Her love proved her forgiveness. And so the better translation really is her sins have been forgiven, therefore she loved much. It's cause and effect. She came to weep and kiss and anoint her Savior because he had already forgiven her. She loved much because she realized how much she had already been forgiven. It's the Pharisee now, on the other hand, the Pharisee who is just as sinful. Now, he doesn't see this, of course, but we know this. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This Pharisee, who is much more upstanding uh, based on appearances, was no less sinful in God's eyes than this woman. And yet, he didn't believe he needed forgiveness. He didn't see his need for grace. And so the, the, the prophecy, in a sense, here has come true. He who is forgiven little loves little. His attitude toward Jesus is casual at best, maybe even cold. He is disinterested. He has some interest in Christ. Maybe because he's a Pharisee, he's trying to trap Jesus in his words, as they often sought to do. But he has no desire to receive what Jesus came to give. And therefore, he has no love for Christ. He has no gratitude for him. He doesn't see his need. Now in verse 48, Jesus turns his attention from Simon now back to this woman, and he said to her, 48, he said, your sins have been forgiven. And I believe Jesus said that to her, but also for the benefit of everybody else around the table here. He wants them to hear it too. Because those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? In other words, who does he think he is? Elsewhere, the Pharisees were quoted as saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? They didn't believe Jesus had that authority. But he turns to this woman and he says, your faith has saved you. Verse 50, go in peace. Go in peace. It's a curious thing. If we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels, it's almost, I, I hesitate to say always, but almost always, when sinners come to Jesus Christ, they walk away full. They walk away healed. They walk away saved, almost always. People who know their sin. When religious people come to Jesus, almost always, they walk away empty-handed because they weren't really interested in what he came to give. They were interested in something else, whether with good intentions or not, and they walked away empty-handed because in their religion, they didn't view themselves as needy. They didn't recognize a need for grace. Now, we have to ask this question. I think it's a fair question at this point. Who do I most identify with in this story? If you're given a choice between Simon the Pharisee and this nameless former prostitute, who do I most identify with? If given the choice, who would I most like to be? Who would I most want to resemble? Now, I realize we're in church, and so, of course, we're going to side with the woman in this case because it's clear that the Pharisee is bad and she's good or, you know or at least the more admirable one, anointing Jesus' feet. But I have to pause on this point here and just ask myself honestly from the heart, who would I rather be? Because I recognize that Simon the Pharisee, we're not given a lot of his backstory, but as a Pharisee, here's what was probably true of him, that he was a respected man. He was an admired person. He was an achiever. The Pharisees were the upper crust of all religious society in Jesus' day. He has friends. He's throwing dinner parties, which means he belongs. People like him. 
as a Pharisee, he probably had a sterling reputation. He probably had no arrest record. He probably didn't have images floating around on the internet of him in compromising situations. He was a good man, and by all accounts, people would have thought very highly of him. It's clear also that he loves himself. He has a very positive self-image, which is very popular uh, in our culture today, something we ought to have. We ought to think well of ourselves. Simon seems to have all those things in order. And the truth is, a guy like this would probably fit in well in most churches, even in our culture here today. It's not a knock on us, it's just the truth, that if you have a buttoned-up uh, life, if you look like you have it together, if you're, if you're seemingly at least a moral and straight-laced person, you're going to fit right in. People are going to like you. People are going to want to be around you. I've spent a lot of time in my own life trying to be that way, trying to belong in that way. But here's the massive problem with Simon and with anybody who reflects Simon's way of life. He was lost. I mean, at the the very base level, this is a man who is lost. He doesn't know Christ. Simon had built for himself a life that did not require God, truly. He worshiped God. He prayed to God. He went to synagogue. I'm sure he did all those things with regularity and with great passion, but he had built for himself a life that didn't require Jesus. He didn't need grace and forgiveness in his own estimation. He didn't need a new identity because he had built the old one up so well and for so long that he couldn't imagine being any other way. This was a self-made man. And here's the great threat to us, to me, when we talk about our faith. If we insist on trying to play this game, the game of put on your best face, be good, do good, look good, If that's what we esteem this whole thing to be about, if that's the greatest desire in my heart, then I will forfeit relationship with Jesus. You can't have both. You can't have, on one hand, a life that receives his grace, and on the other hand, a life that denies it by leaning on religion and appearances so that y'all will think I'm somebody. I've got to kick Jesus out of the picture if I want to be like Simon. He had a heart that didn't have room for God. And so, in other words, I'll say it like this. You will only know and love Jesus to the degree that you recognize how deeply he has forgiven you. That's the point of this story. That the person who is forgiven much loves much. The person who is forgiven little, that is to say, I don't recognize my need for it, loves little. You will only love God to the degree that you have experienced his grace. You will not and cannot know God simply through seeking obedience to his commands through your flesh. You can only know God if you've experienced his grace through Jesus Christ and the rest comes along with it. Simon's got it backward and therefore he shows Jesus no honor. It's the woman... And so, Kyle, you're telling me we ought to be more like the prostitute. And yes, that's, that's actually what I'm saying. Okay, don't tweet me on that. But, but understand here that we're, we, if, we're, if we're comparing these two people, there's no comparison. That by every appearance, we're not talking about, I mean, we're not even talking about the same conversation in terms of appearances, but in terms of the truth that permeates down to the heart and changes a person's life, this woman kicks Simon completely out of the picture. She's... Christ is the hero here, but you know what I mean? She's the one we're here to admire in this case. And that's hard for me. That's hard for us because, again, when we talk about appearances, this is a woman with a horrible reputation, with a terrible past. She's probably full of insecurity. Everybody looks down on her and shuts her out. And I don't want that. I don't want any of that. You don't want that. 
But here's the, here's the, the, the hinge that this story turns on, okay? The point of this story from her perspective is that is who she was. That's not who she is. And we can't miss this here. All those things that were true of her from the appearance perspective, all the people sitting around the table looking at this woman in disgust, they're not looking at the same woman they think she is. Because this is a woman who has been redeemed. This is a woman who has been forgiven. This is a woman who's been saved. And so regardless of what she was, regardless of all the things in her past that she cannot change, that she no longer can do anything about, she has been changed through the grace of Jesus Christ. And regardless of what anybody else around her thought of her, regardless of whether she ever belonged in high society or not, her only concern was, what does Jesus Christ say about me? What does he think about me? And he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in the wholeness and fullness of God that you are no longer who you were. Go in peace. Now, I don't know how shameful your past is for you. I do know that we all have it. We all have things in our past that we're ashamed of, some greater, perhaps some less. But the truth for all of us is that we can't now go back and change those things. Like this woman, we can't undo what we've done. It's been done. And there may be for us a lot of shame with that. And at least for me, my temptation is always is, is to, to, to put on a face to kind of suppress those things in my past or even on my, work, my kind of worst days, I'll even try to excuse those things in my past as if they weren't really all that bad. Right? Those are human responses. Those are natural things. But when we come to Jesus Christ, things are different now. They were for her in Luke 7. They are for us too. That regardless of what our past consisted of, or even what we bring with us in here today, the point is that we don't have to ignore our sin or suppress it, and we certainly shouldn't excuse it. We bring it to Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, Paul writes that our sin debt, our sin debt has been nailed to the cross. He uses the most stark image that he can think of in that moment. That as Jesus was nailed to the cross, he nailed your sin debt there along with him. In Psalm 103, it says that God does not forgive us in word only, but he actually forgives us. It says as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Whereas you and I might forgive somebody in word, but deep in our heart we don't really mean it. I don't know if you've ever done that. God doesn't forgive us in word only. God doesn't forgive you in word, but oh, secretly up in heaven, he's still keeping a good detailed list of all the things he's going to hold against you. No, he has removed our sins from us. He has put our sins to death. Uh, Paul, again, said it this way to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a list of sinful behaviors, and he reminds the church that, that, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you live in these sins... You do not belong to God. But then he, I love what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He says, such were some of you. He speaks in the past tense here. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul says you are no longer defined by your old way of life because someone else has paid the penalty of your sin debt for you. Someone else has taken it away from you and has cleansed you, and his name is Jesus. So that whatever is in our past 
cannot define us any longer. Regardless of what other people might say or think, that is no longer the issue for us because the highest possible authority has declared his truth over you. That by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been washed entirely clean. That was her experience in Luke 7, and it's ours for those who repent and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so this is where God's grace doesn't just save us. It would be enough if God simply wiped the slate clean and gave us a ticket to heaven one day. But the the grace that God gives, the grace that the Bible describes, doesn't just save you and leave you where you are. It changes you. It transforms us. And here's, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading too much into this perhaps, but I love in Luke 7 what Jesus says about this woman. He says something that is, is profound, but it's very easy to miss. Uh, but I think I'm on to something here, okay? He says her sins, remember he's speaking to Simon. He says her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Therefore, she loved much. Therefore, she loved much. Now, what doesn't happen in this text, Jesus does not say she was very thankful, which of course is true. He didn't say she's forgiven much and therefore she has much gratitude, which is true. But Jesus says she has been forgiven and therefore she loves greatly. Jesus's forgiveness of this woman did more than just create gratitude and thankfulness in her heart. It produced love, a new love in her heart so overwhelming that it completely redirected her life. And we know this, just at the human level, we know what love does to us. If you've ever fallen in love, you don't fall in love with a person and you just add that into your life, like it's some sort of compartment and everything else goes on as normal. When you fall in love with someone, you are changed. Your life gets reoriented. You think differently. You desire different things, new things. You start to change in relationship to this person because a new love has been introduced into your heart. You're not the same that you were. I'm going to quote... Man, I ought to be preaching on hell today. (laughs) (laughs) If I would have known... Missed a good opportunity. Uh, Love changes us. I'm going to quote Pastor Tim Keller on this, one of my heroes. Keller says, whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls our feelings and behavior. I'm going to repeat that. Whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls our feelings and behavior. Isn't that true? People, therefore, change not by merely changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most. One of the most powerful things God does when he saves you He reforms your heart. He changes your heart. And and whereas with human love, human love can be very weak and very fickle and even circumstantial. People, we say, can fall in and out of love. That's not the kind of love that, that God produces within us at salvation. In fact, it's not a love that we can manufacture from within ourselves. He's got to do that work. Way back in Ezekiel 36, this is a famous text, where God speaks a new covenant promise to Israel. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will not give you an improved heart. He says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is God's doing here. That if I'm going to belong to him and love him, he's got to produce that within me. It doesn't come from my flesh. And so when we receive God through faith, that's the promise that we receive a new heart, 
a new heart that loves God, that delights in God, our desires begin to change, our preferences begin to change. We love things we used to hate, and we hate things we used to love because God is doing a work in us that changes us. It's that kind of love that, that takes a former prostitute who at one time used her perfume to lure strange men in her direction, but now takes that same perfume and breaks it over her Savior's feet and weeps. That's the kind of love that changes a person. That's what grace does. She's different. And we, when we gather as a church, we gather as a testimony of grace, of transforming grace. None of us are here because we earned our way in. Nobody's here because we deserve to be. And, and that's for us something that we've got to drive down deep, that none of us are self-made like Simon the Pharisee so desired to be and took such great pride in for himself. None of us are products of our own goodness. We are products of God's grace. From top to bottom, we are trophies of God's grace. When people look at me, I don't want them to see anything good in me because there is nothing good in me apart from what Christ has done. And so now, because that is true, because we stand on that truth, we proclaim together, together, that God has loved me and now I can love him. And now I can love y'all. Now I can spend my life, rather than trying to impress you and belong around you, I can actually love you. I can give something to you that's worthwhile because God has done that kind of work in me. And so this is for Harvest Church. When we say that grace transforms, this is for us a hill that we are happy to die on. And I mean that when I say it. We will never, we will never be content to focus ourselves on self-image and self-improvement. That is not what we're here to do. No amount of positive self-image and self-improvement will do you any good. And so that will never be our focus. We are not here to pat ourselves on the back for all the good religious things we do. It gets us nowhere. We are here to know and love and follow our Savior. We are here, I pray in my own heart, that I would have such a heart that I would never casually thank Jesus for his grace. But like this precious woman, that I would weep I don't have much hair to offer, but that I would weep over him at his feet in humility. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. We have the privilege to do that collectively. That's not an individual pursuit only. That is a church. That's what a church is. And so we are here to know and love and follow him and to proclaim together that there is a grace that saves us. But not only that we might get to heaven one day, there's a grace that changes us in the here and now, that we get to be a light in a darkened place, in a darkened world. That's what he's given to us, a grace that transforms. Let's pray. Lord, we have... Um, I say this again, I say it about myself, I have no business being here, except, Lord, that you would look upon me with love, and, and with, no, with nothing worthy about me, Lord, you would um, condescend, you would send your son down to nail my sin debt to his cross and grant me your salvation. Father, I pray that if, 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 there, if there is anyone in this room right now who is not solid on that, who doesn't know that kind of grace, that, Lord, we, we would have a moment with you right now. We begin to deal with, uh, with you at, at the deepest level, that you would convict us of our sin, remind us, Lord, that uh, love us as you do. We, we are fractured. We are separated from you. 
and only our faith in Jesus Christ can, uh, can give us the grace and the righteousness that we so desperately need. Father, because of that truth, because of that gospel that we stand on now, Lord, we're, we're different. And I, Father, we, we, we admit in this moment we don't always feel different. We don't always act differently. And for that, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. I pray we would repent. But Lord, when you made your spirit to dwell in our hearts, you changed us. You took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. And Father, we are now able to love you and walk with you. And Father, I pray, we pray, that, uh, that we would be a people who are never the same because of what we've experienced in Jesus Christ. And where perhaps we have treated you more like Simon, we're glad to have you around, Lord, but we have not given our hearts and our devotion to you. That, Lord, you would, you would remind us of what you've done for us. That we would not be deceived to think that we are somehow good enough. But that we would take our posture, Lord, at your feet in gratitude. That, Lord, you would look upon us and say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Live in the peace that we now have with our Heavenly Father because we have been justified by faith. Lord, let, let this kind of grace change us. Um, and I pray, Father, that in our homes and in our schools and our workplaces and our community, that it would be an obvious transformation, so much so that people would even have to stop and ask, how on earth did we get this way? And we can point to you. Let it be, we pray in Jesus' name.